What is your ordinary? What does your ordinary day look like? What does your regular rhythm look like? And more importantly, how do you respond when that rhythm, when that routine is broken? What is your ordinary? We're in the book of Exodus chapter 3 today as we continue our series, Deliverer, as we look at the life of Moses. And as we look at this, we're going to look and see where God intercepts him and redefines the reason that he's alive, where God gives some direction for him as to the call that he has placed on his life, a call that Moses was aware of, and hopefully we'll be able to see how God is working in our lives in that way, how God is always redirecting the lives of his people toward the things that he would have us to do and the people that he would have us to be. Wrestling with our routines, wrestling with our ordinary, looking and seeing how we are living in a way that honors Jesus in the midst of all of that. We have returned this week to a semi-routine because Jared is back with us. We should let him know how grateful we are that he was leading us in worship today. As he and Sarah have brought the baby tour to a conclusion, I'm glad that everyone got to see that child all over the southeast. Thankful for them. And we're looking at this story of Moses. We're in Exodus chapter 3, and Moses is going through an horn. His mother heard that the king of the world, a man named Pharaoh, or at least called Pharaoh, was going to kill a lot of babies. She looked and said, oh man, he's a baby. I need to do something safe with the baby. And the safest thing that she could conjure up to do with said baby was to put him in a basket and send him down a river. Just the essence and the epitome of safety. The baby is seen by Pharaoh's daughter. She takes the baby in to raise the baby. But as I shared last week, rich people really pay other people to raise their children for them. And when when she sees the baby, she says to a little girl that's standing there, the sister of Moses, go get someone to take care of the baby. The sister of Moses, as a secret agent, goes to get Moses' mother. They move into Pharaoh's house, which is a fantastically large house. And when they get into this house, everything is fantastic. And he is raised as if he is part of Pharaoh's family. Eventually, he is not of the Jewish people, though he is from the Jewish people. Though he, is not, though he lives in the house of Egypt, he is not Egyptian. He is in a disagreement where he kills a man. He leaves and goes to a place called Midian where he marries a woman who is the daughter of a man named Jethro. Jethro is the religious leader who will invest in Moses' life. You know it's bad when Jethro is telling you what to do. Meanwhile, chapter 3, verse 1, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side, your translation may read west side, of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. As Moses looked, he saw that the bush was on fire, but it was not consumed. So Moses thought, I must go over and see. Look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't this bush burning up? When the Lord saw that he'd gone over to look, God called to him out from the bush. Moses, Moses, here I am, he answered. 
Do not come closer, he said. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then he continued, I am the God of your father. I am the God of Abraham, I'm the God of Isaac, and I'm the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because they're oppressors. I know about their sufferings, and I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land. A land flowing with milk and honey. The territory of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. You to Pharaoh, so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses asked God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God answered, I will certainly be with you. And this will be the sign to you that I am the one who sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will also worship God on this mountain. Then Moses asked God, If I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What should I tell them? And God replies, I am has sent me to you. For every believing person in this room, though you are not Moses, you have been brought in To be sent out. I'm not the first person to say that. Numerous pastors throughout the years have shared that sentiment about this text. That God brings you in to send you out. And if you have met with God, you are sent for God. Into our world as agents of reconciliation. As ministers of reconciliation. You have been brought in... To be sent out. Now when we meet together today in chapter 3. We can't forget. Have Moses. Who is living in Midian. If you're unfamiliar. When we first meet with Moses. He has some type of understanding. Some type of recollection. Some type of realization. That he should be a deliverer for God. Of the Jewish people. So much so that he would kill a man. Who had mistreated another Jewish man. However, the way that Moses was attempting to bring God's plan to fruition was not what God's plan was. So when Moses does this, he leaves. And when he goes out, he goes out to this place that is a wilderness where Midian is. And if you were to go to the area where Moses is actually grazing with these sheep, there's nothing that's great there. You would not look and think, man, this is fantastic. You would look at this place and you would think to yourself, this is a tragedy of a location. I noticed yesterday on, on, a, on an Instagram post that they have found in New Jersey, there's this large field and they have found hundreds of pounds of pasta and macaroni cooked and ready to be eaten, just sitting in a field somewhere. That sounds fantastic. 
This is not fantastic. This is the opposite of fantastic. The reason that he's grazing these sheep and moving them from one place to the other is because there's nothing there for them to eat. It's a plain place. It's an area where there is nothing that will grow. The sheep are looking for something to eat. And this very person, Moses, who believed himself to be a leader of God's people, is in a place where he's with sheep in the middle of nowhere following a man named Jethro. It's a tragic situation, really, that many of us find ourselves in at times. We look at our lives and we see, man, this is so routine. This is so ordinary. I expected so much more for my life, whatever that expectation was. I thought that we would be further along by now, in the middle of nowhere, grazing sheep, moving them from one place to the next. Snakes are everywhere, according to historians. There are snakes on the bushes, snakes on the ground, snakes on the plains. There are snakes all around these people. This is a terrible place for Moses to be. And Moses in the passage is grazing the sheep. And we meet in verse 2. It says, The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. The phrase angel of the Lord in Scripture it runs through much of the Old Testament. And when you see angel of the Lord, it should trigger for you what we call a theophany. That is, there is an appearance of God there. God makes himself known to Moses right here in the passage, displays himself through something that Moses recognizes and even notice, but then he's having a conversation with God. Some have gone as far as to say that this is a Christophany. Christophany means that we have a picture of Jesus in the Old Testament. And the reason that we would say that is we have God who is differentiated from God the Father here. The same, but different. Moses right here sees a bush that's on fire that won't burn up. A bush, something that he would understand, something that would draw him in. And here in the text, we can see God showing for each and every one of us. If you have met with the person of Jesus, God in the crucified body of his son, making himself known to you, revealing himself to you as God the son, the same, but unique. One theologian to paraphrase, says this, the Mosaic Revelation something that is altogether unique. And this question has been asked, and I love it. How many problems would Moses have avoided in life if rather than walking up and talking to a bush, he just minded his own business? We've been there. How many of you, if you had just minded your own business, would not have found yourself in the depths of someone else's crisis? Dealing with the weight of someone else's burden? How many of you would have saved yourselves time and resources and energy and effort? How many problems would Moses have missed out on? But Moses is meeting with God. Moses sees a bush that's on fire that won't burn up. Even though, as we all know, if you set anything on fire, it's supposed to burn up. That's one of our guarantees. Revealing to us the supernatural nature of this experience for Moses. Moses here is content to be a nomad. He is content 
to not ever return to Egypt. He is absolutely satisfied, altogether fine, walking these sheep from one place to the next, yet he notices a bush that's on fire that will not burn up. And he decides, for whatever reason, to go over and look at it. Verse 3, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why is the bush not burning up? To have an experience with God is a supernatural thing. John 6 actually says it this way. No one comes to the Father unless the Father draws him. For believing people in this room, if your relationship with God is one that is mundane and easy to take for granted, would you hear what's taking place in this text? Because Moses, Moses. So now, not only do we have a bush that's on fire that will not burn up, we have a bush that's on fire that won't burn up that's having a conversation with you. Someone recognized me in the airport a few weeks ago, and I got mad just at the thought of it. How would you know my name? How would you re- why would you yell my name from across the room? Moses here is in that place, and his response to God is, Here I am. Hello, Bush. Verse 5. Do not come closer. Remove the sandals from your feet. For the place where you're standing... Is holy. It's holy ground. This place where he happens to be, as we walk through the nature of it, doesn't seem to be very holy. He would not buy himself known there. This same word is used to describe so many things the word holy, it's a word that means distinct or set apart. It's a word that applies to the nation of Israel. They are God's holy people, even though when we read the stories of them, they're not that great. We get to the New Testament, and each and every believer in this room, if you are in Christ Jesus through what God has done for you, his broken body, his shed blood, you have been declared holy. This is something that is used by God to describe you. That word that God is saying about this land, it's on you. And you're not holy or special or distinct or any of these things because there's anything that is special about you. What we can see in this passage is that holiness is something that takes place when God makes himself known to us. So for believing people in this space, though you may have a short-sighted view of yourself, God calls you holy. He has declared you as holy. He has said, if you are in me through what I have done for you through Jesus, you are a holy people. The words are pretty daunting, though. The word of God are both inviting and they're ominous. He says to him, come to me. God calls Moses to him. And then the moment that Moses begins to come to him, God says, be careful when you come over here. Next week, as a church family, we'll get to celebrate baptism together. We'll celebrate with some young men and maybe others who who have placed their faith in Jesus or who want to make this declarative statement that they are followers of Jesus. You are saying, I have come near to God through what he has done for me in Jesus. And now, because I have come near to him, he's sending me out. But we cannot take for granted the very holiness of God that runs through the text and runs into each and every one of our lives. I took driver's ed from a man named Bob Mitchell. I had never driven a car before I took driver's education. This man had so many packs of gum in that glove box. 
He was, I think he had other things for when he stood out behind the school afterwards. He was a very stressed out individual, but he would invite me into the car to drive. And when he would get there, he would say, now be careful. He also had a brake that protected me and him, numerous mailboxes, a few garbage cans. He was prepared for that. You look at this passage and you see that God draws us in and says, be careful while you're here. How many of us have taken for granted the holiness of God being known to us in the person of Jesus? Get in, but be careful while you're here. Six, I'm the God of your father. I wonder how long it's been for Moses since he can, which used to sound really old, but doesn't anymore. He's 80. He's far removed from the days of his youth. He has a wife. He has a child. He has a family. This 80-year-old man, I'm the God of your father, pointing out his family. Then Moses reminds him, is reminded by God, of the line from which he came. I'm the God of Abraham. The promise that started it all, I'm that God. I'm the God of Isaac. I'm the God who sees things through. I'm the God of Jacob. I'm the God who would rename a people. That that's who I am. Verse 7. The Lord said out of them, I see that they are overwhelmed. I see that they are mistreated. I see that they are abused. I see that. I see that. I notice that. My eyes are on that. And for all of us in this room who are believers in Jesus, whether it is life because of the broken nature of the world and how sin has infected and infused everything, or maybe it's something that you're walking, God sees the oppression that sin has on us. He, he sees the groaning of our souls. He sees the brokenness in us that says, How long, O oh Lord, will you let this be the way that things are? God sees that. God has not forgotten. God not, has not walked away. He is not blind to your struggle. He is not overlooking your, your plight. I've observed the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because they're oppressors and I know about their sufferings. And I have come down. If we were to see a microcosm of the whole Bible, it's right here. That God sees the suffering of his people and he has come down to rescue. This is the story that we have of the person of Jesus right here foreshadowed in the conversation. I see that my people are struggling and suffering. And I have come down. I've come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians. To bring them from that land to a good and spacious land. A land flowing with milk and honey. The territory of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Websites, the Perizzites, the, Jeb- the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Termites. I'm going this land that belongs to you. There are two things that are consistent about our God in this passage. 
One is that he is beyond us, but he is with us. God is beyond you. He is also with you. He's with you. If you are Moses, you have to think to yourself at this point in the text, this is fantastic, right? All of us are thinking, imagine you're Moses. You grew up in the home of Pharaoh. You tried to deliver your people. You believed yourself to be the deliverer of your people. You were course corrected in that and that you would not be the deliverer of your people. Your whole plan has been undone. You are thrown off by that, but you know that those people need to be rescued. You've just realized that it's not your gig. It's not your job. They need to be rescued, and you may hear whispers or rumors about what's taking place in Egypt, but that's no longer your problem, though you... But why are you telling me any of this? Verse 9, God goes further. Because the Israelites cry for help has come to me, I have also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Right here, you're Moses, you're thinking, what is he even asking of me? Verse 10, as a result of all of this, that's the word therefore, because I see the oppression, I see the mistreatment, I see the way that they have been abused and the way that they're suffering and that their lives are being squeezed out of them because I see every ounce of that. Go. There are so many things in our world people can see and acknowledge that those things need to be considered and corrected. And we would even go as far to say, because we're good church people, I believe God can do that. When you look at your coworker, who for whatever reason doesn't seem to have much consideration of this person of Jesus, you would say as a good church person, I believe God can save that person. Or when we see hunger around us. Hungry people all over the world, hungry people in our very community. One not canceling out the other. Both are problems. We would say that our God has enough resources to feed those people. And the numbers actually say that we have enough resources in the world for people to be fed. I believe God can do that. Or when we as a church say that we are a a church that wants to live out the mission of Jesus. That we believe in the Great Commission. And we consider lostness around the world. Well, I believe that God can save every tribe, every tongue, every nation. None of those are problematic for people who have encountered God in regard to the passive nature of the conversation. Where it begins to be troubling and problematic is that God would say, I'm going to rescue, I'm going to save... I'm going to deliver so you go. Suffering of the world, those who are far from God, who need to be near to God, we are to have a consideration for that. 
in the way that we look at our lives, in the way that we look at our time, you go. You go. Therefore, you go. I'm sending you to the king of the world so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. This has not canceled out what God was going to do. It defines the way by which God will do it. I'm going to rescue. I'm going to save. I'm going to deliver. So you go. And we get to verse 11. And this is where, as they may say, the rubber meets the lives of his people, those who have met with Jesus. What it means for us to be a going people. And the first thing that Moses asks, who am I? Who am I that I should go to the Pharaoh and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Who am I? That's a really good question for Moses to ask. He'd actually forgotten at one point that he, is the, he thought himself to be the rescuer of these people. He thought that he would fix this by any means necessary, by his very means. Who am I? He's overlooked. He's forgotten that that was part of his story. He maybe thought that was a mistake. Who am I that I should do any of these things? What a really popular question and what an easy way to cancel out any action on our behalf for the sake of God. Do you know the things I've done? Who am I to do that? Who am I? I I'm, and this can go from every level of this room. Who am I? I'm just in the fifth grade. Who am I? I'm, I, I'm really just trying to get through college. Who am I? I go to work. I show up. I clock out. I leave. Who am I? I, I? I'm in charge of a bunch of people, but they don't really want to listen to me. Who am I? I'm an introvert. Who am I? This is a who am I question that Moses has here that each and every one of us, if we're being honest and transparent, will also have when God places some type of weight on us. Who am I? Who am I that I should go to the other side of the world? Who am I that I should redirect the way that my funding goes? Who am I? Will anyone really ever listen to me? Who am I? It's not that Moses needs we may, we would probably respond to this differently. I mean, think about your friend that's overwhelmed, that is discouraged. They don't think they can do God stuff. They come to you for a pep talk. You know that they've lived in Pharaoh's house. Moses, do you not realize, I, I hear what you're saying, this who am I stuff, but you lived in his house. That's who you are. You were a really big deal for a long time. I think you might be the chosen one. They found you in a basket. That's who you are. This conversation that Moses is having is one that each and every one of us, he's trying to disqualify himself, and we want people to reassure us with how great we are. Moses doesn't need, nor does he get a pep talk in this passage The response of Yahweh to 
to the situation with, these, with this man. He does not tell Moses he's fantastic. He does not tell him he's wonderful. Though we may believe those things to be true. I will be with you. Certainly. Whatever trepidation you're walking with into what that next thing may be, I'll be with you. I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that I am, I am the one who sent you. Not because you're valuable, but because I'm the one who validates. I will be with you. So whatever you're facing, that's his promise to you as a believer in Jesus. And if you're not a believer in Jesus and you're hearing this today, that invitation is right there. I will be with you if you trust me. Moses has to look in the passage to get to the, to the bush. I will be with you. And then he moves from well, who am I to another question, which is almost as problematic. Well, who are you? We easily forget who God is because we're not anchored in Scripture, because we've allowed 99 other voices to define and dictate for us who God is. If I go to the Israelites and I say, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they say, what's his name? What should I tell them? Well, God replied, I am who I am, and this is what you're supposed to say. I am has sent me to you. That word is super massive in the Old Testament, which does not sound technical, but just go with me. I am is the self-sufficiency of God. So Moses, we can really, let's just get rid of this. God's not calling Moses because he needs him. He called him, called him because he loves him. And any call that God places on the lives of believers in this space, it's not because he needs you, it's because he loves you. He loved, we forget that. On top of that, it's God's statement where he says, I am the God who was. I've always been. I am the God who is. I'm the God who's right now by him. Moses is so unique in the passage. And I don't want us to miss this because we will look at a text like this and we will misunderstand that the way that God calls is different than the way that our society calls. We elevate people who ask to be elevated. We have people who literally run for political positions. We, it's, I'm, I'm leery at times when people ask if they can have leadership opportunities in whatever realm. Moses keeps making excuses, though he is a Messiah figure. He's acting like each and every one of us when God calls us. Our politicians, they run for election and Moses is running from it. He is running from who God would have him to be and what God would have him to do. Can the same be said of each and every one of us? That God calls his people and he sends his people. He then to chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. Hey, listen, I know we've been talking, God. 
they're not going to listen to me. And God says, you're going to do supernatural things in front of them because I'm with you. You get to 10 through 12 and he says, but you know, I can't talk. I can't talk. I stutter all the time. And God goes as far to say, I'm the one who gives people mouths. I'm with you. I didn't come to you because you're a good talker. He then, it just, it gets, in 13 to 17, he gets really honest with God. I don't want to do it. And then, to paraphrase Exodus 4, 13 through 17, God says, you are getting on my ever-loving nerves. But Yahweh is patient. God says to him, you have a brother. He does not tell Moses, your brother's kind of a dummy. I will help you. I will help him. I will guide you. I will guide him. I will be with you. Now take this stick and go do what I've told you to do. This whole conversation should encourage us wherever we happen to be. If you are in Christ Jesus and you have disqualified yourself from the things of Christ Jesus because of your perceived value of yourself, would you realize that the promise to Moses is the promise that God has made to you? He said it to Moses. He said it to Joshua. He said it to the prophets. He said it in the New Testament. He said it when Jesus says the world's going to be full of troubles, but I'm with you. He said it when Jesus tells us, go make disciples of all nations. I'll be with you always. It is all over the pages of Scripture. In the Scriptures, the sinful person who leads, the, the sinful person who leads has been drugged to that place. The person who led Israel and who led the church in the New Testament had very much hesitation. So what's your excuse and what's mine? Because his promise has not changed. I will be with my people. I am with you. Today as a church family, here's what we do. If you are unfamiliar, each Sunday at Grace, we invite believing people in this space to the table. Where we are reminded that God is with us through his broken body, through his shed blood. So today, for each and every one of you who are a believer, I invite you. If you're not a man, we take communion as a family of faith each week to be reminded of God's great promise to us that he is with us. So whatever hesitation you have, whatever doubt you have about God using your life for whatever reason, he invites you now, bring every ounce of that hesitation to his promise. Bring all of it to the promise where the broken body and shed bloody blood of Jesus triumphantly declare to each and every one of you, I am still with you. I've not forgotten you. I've not abandoned you. I've not forsaken you. Whatever you're walking through, I promise I am with you. Would we hear that? Would we know that? Would we respond to that? If you're not a believer in Christ Jesus, I'm in the back corner of the room where I stand each and every Sunday and you would like to talk about what it means to place your faith in Jesus. Just come talk to me. Not because I have all can walk you through what it means to place your trust in Christ Jesus, what it means for him to die in your place so that you could be with him. 
That's our hope. So bring all of your hesitation, bring all of your doubt, bring all of your questions to the table and say, Jesus, would you use my life and would you use it by reminding me that you're with me? Heads are bowed. Jesus, we thank you for today. And Father, to all of us, all of us, would this promise hold firm? But we know that it does, that you are with us. So as we take the cup, as we, as we eat of the bread, we'll be in, would we in unison say, God, I'll do whatever you would want me to do and be whoever you would have me to be because I know you're with me. We ask it in your name, Christ.